Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. Parents, when you visit California, childhood rules. If you don't remember how awesome childhood is, just ask yourself, What would kids do? Then pack your fun pants and let childhood rule your family vacation. Start planning at visitcalifornia.com. It's Friday, May 8th, 2015, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds, or at inquiringshow.tumblr.com, and on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. So what do you think about teaching creationism in schools? Like, and I don't mean, is, is it okay to teach it? I mean, do you think that we should not be allowed to teach creationism in school? Well, it depends on where. I feel more strongly about where than, um, than anything else. I'm probably going to say no on both counts. But in science class, certainly no. Because in, whether it's intelligent design or any other things, that's not a scientific theory. That shouldn't be taught. Uh, but creationism in maybe a religious studies class, I could see. I don't really want it there either. So, of course, I'm never going to teach creationism in any kind of class. Uh, but I, you know, also wonder if you're exactly right, that maybe it should be allowed to be taught in, you know, a philosophy class or, a you know, philosophy of religion class or even a in, in a sense, like sort of controversies in the education of science class. But I don't what think... What class is that? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe we should have one. But I certainly agree with a federal judge who ruled in a case in 2005 that the teaching of intelligent design, which I'm probably going to get called out on this, is not the same thing as creationism. I'm sure there's some kind of subtle difference. But in my mind, the two are very similar. That it is unconstitutional to teach intelligent design in public school science classes. That seems sensical to me because it's not a scientific theory. So in response to that, some states, notably Texas, Louisiana, and Tennessee, then subsequently pass laws that permit public school teachers to teach, quote unquote, alternatives to evolution and use public funds to do so. so these are public schools. And there are even some states like Florida, Indiana, Arizona, where public funds are used to support creationist private schools via state tuition vouchers or other kinds of scholarships. So there are some states that are getting around this ruling and actually using taxpayer money to fund you know, to the teaching of alternatives to evolution like creationism. But there's a study that came out in Science in 2011 that details the responses of 926 public high school biology instructors. So already by then, it should have been pretty well established that not only should you not be teaching creationism in public schools, in science classes, um, but certainly, you know, arguably then, you should be able to teach evolution. That should just be a given. 
But it turns out that in that particular study, the scientists found that only 28% of teachers consistently introduce evidence that evolution occurred, and 13% explicitly advocate creationism. And about 60%, so pretty large majority, try to avoid the controversy. And so in how they avoid that controversy varies from classroom to classroom, but essentially they just try to maybe say, I don't know, vaguely evolution is a theory or something like that. That sounds like the worst biology class ever. Yeah. And of course, it probably underlines why American students continue to be behind other, you know, students from other countries in terms of their science education. So, This has been a topic that obviously is of importance, I think, uh, to the general public, but also to me personally, as someone who's interested in communicating science to the general public and um, getting rid of myths out there about science in particular. So I came across an article in Orion magazine. And um, so if you're not familiar with Orion, it's an award-winning literary magazine about environment, nature, and science. And there was a an article in the magazine um, called Defending Darwin, and you can find it at orionmagazine.org. In it, the author is James Krupa, and he's won several national and state teaching awards and every major teaching award at the University of Kentucky. And at the University of Kentucky, he's a tenured professor of biology, and one of the things that he's done for many, many years is taught evolution. So what's really interesting about this particular piece is how he documents the responses of some of his students to his teaching of evolution and his responses to those. And it's a really heartwarming, touching article, but it also underscores how important, of course, it is to teach evolution before the students come to college. And to clarify, he really emphasizes the teaching of a a biology class to non-science majors as the place where this mostly happens. So it's a very introductory class. And the people that he's engaging with are required to take this class as part of their sort of commitments in in university. So he's reaching sort of a real broad population, not science majors. Yeah. And I think that what's really interesting about his work is that, you know, he he really is talking to students who are probably never going to read a scientific paper, are never going to be exposed to science. They're not going to choose to read things about science. And he talks about how his class, this sort of biology for non-science majors, is probably the last chance that any of us have to influence people who are going to go on to be, you know, leaders and organizations and the government and so forth, that evolution is a fundamental tenet of biology. And, you know, he talks about how you really can't understand the current state of biology right now without understanding evolution. I think it's kind of fascinating because I think by the time people get to college, I guess I have the, maybe this is way myopic and I'm excited to hear what he has to say. But I have this idea that creationists is a generational problem, that it's older people that um, that generally subscribe to this this viewpoint and that we're not seeing that infiltrate in colleges now. Well, I actually think that, you know, these rulings and these state laws that have been passed, you know, in 2011, 2012, you know, that that came in response to the 2005 ruling 
really demonstrate that this is a very current problem. This is something that is facing the generation of kids that are in school today in those states. So, you know, although Kentucky does not have a law passed in which uh, biology teachers are allowed to teach creationism, neighboring Tennessee does. Um, So, you know, there that, you know, there are lots of students who are being taught in their science classes in high school that creationism is a viable alternative to evolution. So, That will be our interview for today. But uh, let's first talk about some science in the news. So, Kishore, what's on your mind? So, loyal listeners to the show know that uh, you love music. I not only love music, I make part of my living doing music. you teach music. Uh, You love the brain. I do love the brain. And uh, some of our listeners probably know that you're Canadian. I am Canadian. Oh, well, I found the perfect study to talk about with you. (laughs) What is this, like singing Canadian neuroscientists? A scientist, uh, Stephen McAdams, uh, wanted to study the evocative nature of music and wondered if that was universal. And so he did a controlled study with 40 pygmies from Africa and 40 Canadians and played them the same set of music to see if their response to the music was the same. And why he chose the pygmies is because this group in Africa that he particularly worked with had not been exposed to a lot of Western culture. They don't even use radios in a lot of ways. So they don't have exposure to the same similar patterns that we've all grown up with in terms of music and, and, and pop culture. And the music he used were scores from movies. Wow. That I can't wait to hear the results of this study, but I already have a few ideas, things that I, I, you know, I can't, one of my favorite things to do when I'm thinking about a study is to predict the, you know, the outcome before we actually get there. And to, from all the studies that I've read and from my own experience, one thing that I think is very true is that you, the actual music that you prefer and that might evoke an emotion from you, that seems to be one of the pleasurable aspects of listening to music, depends on your experience with music. And there's, you know, a whole, we can do a whole show about how one of the things that makes music music and why we love it so much is because our brains are actually actually searching for patterns in the music. And so the more familiar you are with a particular genre, the better able you are to find those unique patterns in a particular performance and that we like that you know that novelty seeking but the aha moment of oh I get what that person is trying to do and these patterns signify the intention of the musician and that's why you know it's communicative so I would say that if you're just playing music to uh, a group of people who have never been exposed to that music that likely they will show they will find that music less evocative well let's find out let's see if you agree with the Canadians uh, uh, well, this. but that's a whole other special. I mean, first of all, where, what's the baseline here, right? Do the Canadians have any emotions or are they just being, you know, nice? I think they have emotions. It's a Stanley Cup playoffs right now. So okay. I think they have plenty of emotion. Ready? Yeah. So here's one of them. What's your emotion when you hear that famous song? <laughs> well, <laughs> that just makes me really happy. <laughs> That's right. That's a Star Wars Cantina song. And that's the emotion they were looking for um, uh, to come out of that. And most of the Canadians <laughs> expressed that happy was what came out of that. And then what about this one? <laughs> well, that sounds pretty scary. Yeah, that's exactly the response they had. And what they found was, is that while tempo uh, seemed to create arousal and excitement in the same way in the pygmy music and uh, and and that was shared uh, across the Canadian uh, profile that this notion of melancholy and happiness 
and um, fear did not resonate because they had a totally culturally different way of approaching music. Most of their music has uh, vocal intonations, and they're not. And in their culture, they don't consume music in the same way we do Westernly. Uh, they use it as part of like tribal celebrations. It's not for pure enjoyment and pleasure uh, in the in the same sort of way. So the no- idea of fear and happiness didn't come through in that same way because they didn't have a cultural connotation of that's how music works in their society. So it was kind of funny to to see a, a study on pygmies and Canadians when it comes to music. So the idea is that there is a universality to music and it seems to go to tempo and, and um, in pitch. And that does seem to go across a whole set of people, but intricacies of it, especially emotional response do get colored by our societal conditioning. Well, I think that makes a lot of sense, given so my you know previous bias in this idea that music really signals intentionality through the patterns. And so, if you don't understand those patterns, that you know the more subtle the intention, the more difficult it would be for a naive listener to pick it up. Um, but we see some of the same thing when we look at cross-cultural studies of facial expressions, for example, right? Like the big facial expressions, you know, disgust, sadness, fear—the ones that are really kind of basic—tend uh, to get picked up across cultures, but the ones that are more nuanced, you know, someone may be feeling shame or guilt or what have you, um, you know, tend to be more culturally specific. Speaking of pattern recognition, did anything catch your eyes in terms of science and the news this week? Oh, yes. I was trying to avoid talking about this. I'm not letting you avoid talking about this. (laughs) It's a sad day in my field. Uh, Well, not really sad, I suppose. But it's just one of those moments where you have to take stock of what you're doing and how you're doing it. And uh, of course, I'm referring to the replicability project in psychology, um, the, the mo- many of the results of which were published online on the 24th of April, just a couple weeks ago. Um, and now those uh, um, studies are being reviewed, I believe, at Science, um, although, you know, who knows whether they will be published there or somewhere else. But Essentially, the story is, is that there was a big effort um, that was headed by the Center for Open Science. And uh, there is a, um, a scientist there named Brian Nosek, whom um, my husband actually went to school with um, and whom I sort of know peripherally, uh, who, who led this uh, um, effort to replicate 100 research findings in psychology. And they posted the results, and it turns out that the key findings of only about 39 of the published studies, so, you know, almost 40%, could be reproduced. So more than 60% were not replicated. So that's the punchline, you know, very sad. Um, Because, of course, it suggests that, you know, anybody who publishes this paper wants to feel like this is the definitive, you know, idea on this particular topic. We found the finding, and here's the fact. (laughs) Um, but we know that, especially in psychology, that doesn't always maintain um, its sort of relevancy over time, in part because psychology, of course, is influenced by changes in generations, right? So that's one aspect of it. But the question is, is, that, is, is this, are these findings really that damning? And if you look a little bit more closely um, at sort of exactly how things were or weren't replicated, things get a little bit more nuanced, as always, in science. So it's actually not easy. You'd think it'd be pretty simple um, to show whether something, whether a finding has been reproduced, right? But statistics are a little bit more complicated than that. And there are a number of different ways in which we can measure replicability. Um, And so when you actually look at 
the findings in terms of how closely they resemble the original studies, you see that Yes, in the 39 studies that were, you know, met the criteria for replicability, um, a few of them actually looked that the results didn't look, they only looked somewhat similar to the original studies. But if you look at the 61 that did not meet the criteria for replicability, um, most of them are actually moderately or somewhat similar. And only about 15 of them showed results that were not at all similar. So then you could argue, you know, if you squint a little bit, that 85 out of 100 studies showed somewhat similar results. Can the listeners feel the expression on my face right now? Because it's one of skepticism. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> I have to say a couple things. So if uh, people that listened to our show last week with Ivan Aransky might have heard in passing him mention this topic, that reproducibility might be one of those biggest white whales in all of science right now, because we don't know what this means. And we're talking about it in the context of psychology, but this goes across dozens of fields. In fact, there's a lot of work being done right now in terms of reproducibility around work in cancer and biology, generally, that are have much lower rates um, then, well, uh, I wouldn't uh, say they're much lower, but they are lower. They are and, lower. And, and so you would think if you're comparing psychology to, say, like cancer or cell biology, that it's more of a problem if the cancer and cell biology results don't replicate since psychology is all we already know psychology is fraught with, you know, problems of subjectivity and so forth. So, you know, I think that and, and this whole effort started with studies that were coming from big pharma in which these big pharmaceutical companies actually could not replicate some of the fundamental studies that they based their investment into new drugs on. So psychology is not alone. And comparatively, you know, if I'm going to look at the world, you know, the glass half full. You can hear your own pitch like <laughs> changing in your voice as you're saying this, right? Uh, yeah, but I have to say that, you know, I, I expected worse. I, I'll put it out there. I expected the results to be worse. If there's anything that this tells me is that there, beyond the fact that there's a ocean of work to be done in this area, is that this is probably the strongest case for open data and sharing of data uh, around what's submitted to, to journals, because that's really where reproducibility uh, goes to. And it, it relies upon that, that data sharing and data collection uh, and data storage uh, to really verify. And uh, I think this might be uh, what, I, at least what I hope, is the beginnings of that movement to take hold, because we're seeing more and more of these cracks. And every scientist I talk to is not surprised by this and shares the same dread that you just expressed around these issues. So in some ways, it's an internal housekeeping issue. It shouldn't be translated out to like science can't, you know, make its own findings, uh, you know, uh, can't agree on its own findings. It's not that kind of situation, but it is a problem if we let it sort of fester. Yeah, and I, I, I agree with you that I think open data is going to be one of the ways in which we can solve or at least attenuate this problem um, if it really is a problem. I mean, I'm still not 100% convinced that, you know, each one that, that the scientists that did the original studies did something wrong. You know, I think it might be more about understanding how science and psychology in particular changes over decades and so forth. Um, but also, you know, kind of uh, people who are concerned about the reproducibility project you know, they've they've highlighted a few potential problems with this approach. And one of them is, you know, often people who are going to be doing studies that are going to be replicating other studies, you know, 
on average, I don't know. And again, this is I don't know if this is the case, but it's the charges have been laid that on average, they're not going to be potentially as good scientists as people who come up with their own ideas and, you know, study them in that way. And that's not true there for for in, in a number of these um, studies, the the, you know, they're highly decorated scientists were the ones who were leading these projects, right? So but you could argue that you could see a situation in which the people who are trying to reproduce the results are just not as good at whatever technique they're trying to do. And that often the success of a study depends on the technical nature of the way you run the study. So, and, and of course, especially when we're talking about fMRI and neuroimaging, there's a lot of technological um, stuff involved. And if you make a mistake, even a simple one, failure to reproduce is totally possible just because you've made a mistake. For those that are looking for solid answers on this, check back with us in about 10 years, because I think it's going to take decades for any real conclusions to come out of this work. Yeah, and of course, these studies are going to be peer-reviewed. So hopefully, as they get peer-reviewed, the, the you know, repli- reproducibility studies, as they get peer-reviewed, we'll find out whether they are, in fact, conducted in a way that is considered of high scientific integrity, or if there were technological flaws that might explain why they didn't find the same results. So the jury is still out. I still have hope for my particular field, but I also want to underscore the fact that, you know what, like for the majority of these studies, they didn't get wildly different results. <laughs> so maybe that's okay for now. So with that, let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Jim Krupa. Inquiring Minds is supported by A24 presenting Ex Machina, the provocative new sci-fi thriller that has audiences and critics seduced. Manola Dargis of the New York Times calls it a critic's pick. We actually had Alex Garland, director of Ex Machina, on the show a couple weeks ago. And this really is an astounding film about artificial intelligence and humanity. Peter Travers of Rolling Stone declares you've never seen anything like it. Ex Machina, now playing everywhere. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Jim Krupa. Uh, It's great to be here. So I loved your Orion Magazine essay called Defending Darwin. And one of the things I really enjoyed about it is how it seems like you've come to become an evangelist of science of sorts by default, not because it was something that necessarily you set out to do, but because it seems that it was something that came out of your work. Is that an accurate characterization? Oh, I think so. Yeah, it's just trying to do the job. And it's funny how these unforeseen uh, paths pop up and sometimes they just simply need to be followed. So let's start with what first got you interested in biology and evolution in particular. Oh, I I think I hatched a biologist. Uh, My parents had us hunting and fishing and camping every weekend uh, if the weather was suitable. So I was connected to nature very early on and uh, constantly. And uh, there there are pictures of me as a little child holding any kind of thing you can imagine, worms, plants, fish, who knows it. So it it, it might be in the genetics, but the, my parents also encouraged it. Um, evolution, it, that's, that's a, an interesting story in, in several ways. And um, it, it almost sounds like a hard story, but my it, it really did define me as an evolutionary biologist in some ways. But when I was in fourth grade, um, in music class, I can't sing, didn't want to sing. I'd sit in the back of the room and just, just gesticulate um, all these motions like I was singing up a storm when I wasn't doing anything. But I remember one of the classes, 
um, a, a little boy next to me gave me a book, and to this day I wish I knew the title. I, I thought it was the Darwin Reader, but apparently not because there is a Darwin Reader at something else. But he gave me this little book with pictures of Darwin and geological formations and fossils and Neanderthals, and I was just fascinated by this. So during music class, I was in the back of the room thumbing through this thing, absorbing it, not paying attention, and the teacher saw that, and she came into the back of the room, and she took the uh, the book away from me, and she went to the front and noticed what it was, and just absolutely went crazy. And she came back and she to me, and she was red faced, shaking the book at me, and spitting almost. Well, no, she's actually spitting when she talked, and she said, "The biggest mistake your parents made is the day you were born, they didn't tie a rock around your neck and throw you in the Missouri River." <laughs> and what? I am, hmm. Yeah, I, I'm a little, and I can still remember this. I can't remember her name. I can remember the room. I can remember where it was in the building. But it was a, a stunning thing to say. And that really, I don't think I realized it at the time, but that really defined everything as far as it made me very aware later on uh, this acute um, intolerance of certain aspects of science. And, and I, I, I think just the curiosity of that. Uh, made me very interested in evolution, and I think probably by high school um, I was very fascinated by it. And then I encountered Creighton Steiner, this amazing teacher in Omaha Central High School, and he was absolutely addicted to evolution and taught me evolution and explained why people were opposed to evolution, and, and he really th then shaped me. So two very different teachers had a profound impact on me becoming an evolutionary biologist. So one of the things that still shocks me to this day is, you know, reading about the statistics of people who still, I don't even know if, if deny is the right way, but, you know, don't think that evolution is a fact, that there isn't enough evidence for it in the U.S. and in a, in a Western educated country. You know, I, it just it, may, it leaves me speechless because I don't quite understand why it remains such a major problem. So can you enlighten me on this? Um, Why do people <laughs> find it so, you know, difficult to accept in our day and age? If I could answer that question, I would accomplish something I don't think anybody has fully. Uh, actually, my uh, former co-advisor from Oklahoma and I are contemplating a book on this, and he's been putting a lot of time into it uh, during retirement. Um, but it, there have been many that have attempted to answer that question. And it's hard. Some have suggested it was sort of a founder effect where a small population of very conservative folks from the old world uh, got this country started. Some think it's still um, some sort of southern resentment of the north telling them what to do. Um, there have been all sorts of explanations, and I don't think any of them really convinced me fully. So it's, it's a mystery. But, you know, I mean, it goes back to – for as long as we can remember, religion or religious beliefs or religious documents have explained the natural world. That was the only explanation. And then about 500 years ago or so, we have science, and science is giving us another explanation of the natural world. So from the beginning, there has been a clash. You have two different explanations for what goes on in the world. One of them has a religious basis. The other one has evidence. And I don't think humanity in a lot of places has come to grips with an alternative explanation for the natural world. And that's part of it. And, I, you know, one of the most 
wonderful things about evolution that gets those of us who are evangelists for science really excited about it is the fact that it tells a really great story. The story of how we evolved, how the world came to be, how biodiversity came to be is really wonderful. And it sometimes makes me wonder whether it's the fact that it's such a great story that seems to, you know, compete with some of the other great stories in a sense that people who that religions are based on. Do you think that's part of the problem is that, you know, it, it is such a compelling story that that is frightening to someone whose uh, beliefs rely on another compelling story? I think that's part of it. It's, it, it goes back to the competition thing, a little bit different version. So I, I think that is part of it. And, you know, the, the resentment of evolution ebbs and flows in this country. We had the Dover trial a few years ago. Um, it's still a problem, but sometimes it's in the limelight, sometimes not. Um, but it it's an interesting thing that we might go down two paths. Some feel that this new generation that's uh, accepting of same-sex marriage that is accepting of various things will be more accepting of evolution. And this is going to be something that the the aging generation is going to leave behind. I hope that's the case. But on the other hand, I think as evolution and science explain more and more of the natural world, especially evolution, I think it might be seen as more and more of a threat. So in the near future, it might be seen that this is a more threatening science or it might be a more accepted science. I don't know which way it's going to go. It's going to be interesting to see. Because as I taught non-majors, I had less and less difficulty with students um, as far as vocally stating their opposition to evolution. There definitely was a tapering off. But at the same time, as I was teaching human ecology, so just imagine in the course of a Tuesday or a Thursday, I was teaching about evolution in one class and then I'd step into the next class and I was talking about global warming. So I, I was hitting the two hot button issues. But as time went on, it seemed like more and more students on my teaching evaluations were complaining about me trying to convince them that global warming was a fact. So evolution seemed to be a little bit on a dip, uh, climate change on the rise. So it it is interesting. But I I still have some hope that um, in time, this new science will be accepted. Because over time, the whole uh, heliocentrism, geocentrism, that had tremendous opposition initially. Uh, And with time, over 100 years, folks start to accept it. So in some ways, evolution is about 150, 160 years after Darwin has laid it down, and maybe it just hasn't been enough time yet. Let's hope. Let's hope indeed. So you're uh, obviously at the University of Kentucky, as you mentioned, and um, are you still teaching non-majors the, the biology class, or have you moved on to other courses now? Well, that's the funny thing is I'm not doing it anymore, and, and I miss it in some ways. The university um, redefined how many natural science classes uh, non-students had to take. They dropped it from two to one. So fewer students are taking those classes, which disappoints me. But um, five years ago, after a long time of trying to push it, finally, um, we have made an introduction to evolution class required for all biology majors. And when that happened, uh, it seemed very clear it was time to step into that and develop that course. So I'm teaching even more evolution now, but not to non-majors at this time. And uh, I have mixed feelings about that. I I, I can't teach that much. I'll burn out. So uh, I stepped away. Others have filled in with varying levels of agreement with how I think teaching should be done. So 
Uh, not in it anymore, but I'll, for example, in the fall, I'll be teaching the required evolution course probably to 300 students as well as a senior seminar in evolutionary medicine. So I'm teaching a lot of evolution. Well, that's one of the things I really loved about your essay is how you underscored how important it is for non-biology majors, non-science majors to take a course on evolution, given that, you know, evolution is a fundamental thing that you need to understand to understand anything about our current, you know, study of biology. And also, as you mentioned in your essay, that these non-majors often go up to be thought leaders in our country. Uh, so can you speak a little bit to that? Is there another way that we can reach these non-majors if it isn't um, in their years of co- in their college years? Well, I guess that means reaching them in high school, doesn't it? Um, I think a lot of uh, a lot more public outreach faculty need to be more involved in trying to educate or enlighten uh, the public. We we tend not to. We tend to retreat into the ivory tower and dismiss the world when the world is providing the money for our science and our scientific research. So uh, much more outreach. Um, Help those poor high school science teachers uh, with teaching evolution. These folks are working hard and they're overworked and they don't get to think about evolution 24 hours a day the way I can. So we need to help. And And the National Center for Science Education is there to do that. So um, we need to give the teachers all the opportunity in the world to teach evolution as strongly as they can. How we protect them from parents who complain, I don't know, because that's the thing. They, they truly are on the front lines. And if they try to teach uh, evolution in certain areas, they're going to get pounded by parents. Um, so, yeah, it, it needs to start early. And my feeling, and again, this is my feeling, that I, I wish we could teach it in, in elementary school when every little kid is basically a natural scientist. I don't know where they're getting turned off to science. Everybody blames everybody. I have no idea. But um, starting to give them the evidence or the foundation without maybe saying the word early on, I think would help. Yeah, there's a great um, child development researcher at Berkeley, Alison Gopnik, who essentially wrote a book about how children are born scientists, <laughs> you know, from from their, their very first experiences with the world. And I think that's exactly right. And it, you know, what also resonated me in your essay is how, you know, you've kind of, in your non-major class at least, turned around the whole notion of how biology should be taught. So it, it very much mirrored what I got when I took Bio 101 at the University of Toronto. The entire course should have been called Evolution 101. And we looked at all the aspects of biology through the lens of evolution. And that is the only way that things seem to make sense. Evolution is, you know, the one unifying thing in in all of biology. And I think that that's how things should be taught already in high school. You know, as you mentioned in your essay, it seems to be backwards if we start talking about, you know, all these different modules of biology, and then you tack on evolution at the end. So do you think it's possible for... Kentucky, for example, to adopt a way of teaching science in high school that starts with evolution? Or do you think that that's just a pipe dream? I think it's totally possible. Um, I haven't looked at the uh, Kentucky standards lately, so it used to be change over time instead of evolution. It probably still is. But um, this this is something that can be done and can be discussed and should be discussed. Um, teaching it in that way. I, I first realized that that's the way it should be taught by reading various editorials in the American Biology Teacher, the uh, the, the journal, 
And, and this was back in the early and mid-90s. There were a number of editorials and comments that too many teachers are, are doing evolution at the end and it needs to come up front. So that's where I first realized I needed to teach that way. So this is a discussion that's been around a while. Um, and it really does come down to knowledgeable folks who are involved in, in um, developing the standards and the teaching curricula in our public schools uh, to make this happen. So, yes, Kentucky, it's perfectly possible. Uh, and I've been a little separated from that here for a while, so I don't know exactly how much effort's being made. And, you know, I, I hope if maybe folks in this state and other states do read the essay that maybe they'll say, yeah, we probably should do this as well. It has to be done. Absolutely. You know, that was one of the things that really shocked me when I first moved to the U.S. I, I grew up and, and did my undergraduate work in Canada. And, it, it you know, at the University of Toronto, I didn't meet a single person who doubted evolution, who, you know, we, we might argue about certain aspects of it and, um, you know, some, some, some mechanistic explanations and so forth, but nobody actually doubted the fact of evolution. And so when I came to the U.S. and, and you know, I sort of had conversations with individuals who said, look, evolution is just a theory. There's no evidence supporting it. I, I at first was dumbfounded and didn't really have a response. Uh, you know, I'm a little bit better at answering that question now, but I, I really want to talk to you now about how to talk to individuals who have not accepted evolution as fact. And where do we begin that conversation? If, if someone, you know, says to you, why are you teaching this theory that doesn't, isn't, evidence-based, what do you say to them? Well, if I, it, it depends on how feisty a mood I'm in. Uh, I, I, can, I can say that to them, the fewer individuals who understand evolution, the more who will die. And that's the John Maynard Smith quote version of it. Um, I, I think the power is in evolutionary medicine. If they say it doesn't exist and there are no fossils and there's no fossil evidence on and on and on, I, I think the secret might be to say that, well, it does have an influence on your life. And now let's start talking about the evolution of pathogens to having resistance to antibiotics. Let's start talking about the basics of evolution um, actually influencing your health. And if you understood natural selection, if everybody understood natural selection inside and out, we wouldn't have the pathogens evolving the resistance that we see currently. So... I, I think it's got to get to the point where, yes, this actually has a negative or positive inf impact on your life and then get their attention. It seems like it would work, but I'm still not <laughs> totally sure why this anti-vaccination movement is. Well, I've read a lot about it, but I, I'm still fascinated about that because that does deal with one's health. But we, I think in all cases we have to explain to them this does influence you. It shouldn't be the way we do it, but the reality is I think that's how we have to sell it. So I, I would explain those sorts of uh, aspects of evolutionary medicine to these people. And the reality is I'll, I can tell immediately if the person's ready to be confrontational and they're closed-minded, there's not much to be said. And I have debated. I've debated for the ACLU. Um, uh, but I, I'm not going to debate one-on-one. -on -one. So if they sound like they're curious, if they sound like they're on the fence, if they genuinely want to know – I'll start with evolutionary medicine um, and then try to avoid the one-on-one -on -one confrontations as much as possible. It's, it's pointless. If I'm going to have a confrontation, I might as well be in front of an audience or in front of a, a TV camera. So you've, you've had instances of students kind of heckling you, in your, at least in your biology for non-majors class. How did you handle those situations, 
you know, once the person leaves and slams the door, do you address what they said to the rest of the students or do you just move right on? Oh, I, I do. I do talk about it. And so of the 24,000 students I've had, the, the door slamming happened maybe, I think, five or six times. Um, the last one was, I think, right towards the end of my teaching of the non-majors. And it, it it's in a big auditorium, well, a large auditorium that holds about 330 students. And it's right across from the biology building, so or biology office. So oftentimes faculty will come in and see what's going on. And uh, it just happened to be the day where my chair and the associate chair were stepped in just to see what I was talking about. And a student in the back of the room said, but you've lied. There are no transitional forms in the fossil record. Why do you keep saying that? And I mean, yelled out from the back of the room. And this is after a semester of, of providing that evidence. And so that was that was surprising, uh, and uh, my goal was to try to stay calm, cool, sound professional, don't get emotional, and I can get emotional, so I have to work at that, uh, and try to explain that, no, that's incorrect, and give the examples, and, and she kept on for several minutes, and at some point, I knew that I'd have to say, we need to stop now, but I was trying to explain, and then the interesting thing is a number of students uh, got involved. And a couple of them said, well, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian and I don't see what the problem is here. And we've seen the evidence. And a few of them had really very articulate responses to this student. Uh, and it, it went on a while and it, it, my chair is watching this unfold. And at some point she sat back and quit. And then when she when uh, the class ended, she did slam the door as she went out and she kicked something on the way out. Um, so I think I did okay, but um, that was probably one of the bigger challenges I've ever had as a as a teacher in a classroom. Yeah, I mean, I think that that would be a challenge, you know, for anyone, and 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 so I think you handled it brilliantly. I hope so. And as you asked earlier, I then did talk to the class a little bit about it. But then at the end of the semester, I did the uh, my social resistance to evolution lecture, so I could explain it a little bit more. What is the Social Resistance to Evolution lecture all about? Oh, it is, um, well, I I used to be very nervous about doing it, and I used to do it in mid-semester, I think right after I taught human evolution, and then I oriented things around a little bit. So human evolution is towards the end, it's followed by evolutionary medicine, then it's followed by the Social Resistance to Evolution. This is where I just lay out the history uh, and everything I've read that the main thing is... I point out that when you're told that there's a dichotomy, evolution versus God, that there isn't a dichotomy, this is false information. And I do talk about, and I had it in the essay, I talk about uh, the various Christian denominations who accept the teaching of evolution or maybe reject the teaching of creationism. Um, I give examples of evangelical Christians of prominence that defend evolution I, I try to show that it isn't a dichotomy and that there are those who are what we call theistic evolution people who uh, um, accept the existence of a God, their God, a Christian God, whichever God, and uh, and science, and that they can go hand in hand. And I always point to Jimmy Carter, former President Jimmy Carter, because he is a an ardent defender of evolution and he's an evangelical Christian. So I think that's key because they've been hearing from their parents and in many cases, they're ministers, that evolution's bad, it encourages racism, and if they accept that they have to uh, reject God, and I, I make it clear that that's not the case. It's interesting, I've been getting dozens, probably hundreds of emails about this essay, and 
yesterday morning I got an email from a student at another Kentucky university and she said that her father is a Baptist minister and her mom's deeply religious and she's in a small town in eastern Kentucky and most of her friends are deeply religious. But she's been fascinated by evolution from day one and has had conflict with family members and friends um, all along. And that after she she read my essay and she uh, put it on Facebook and 40% of her friends defriended her. I don't do Facebook, so I don't know the term. So I think she said defriended her. And I gave her some encouragement and some resources. And she is forming a group uh, of students at, at Eastern Kentucky University where she is uh, to talk about evolution and life and religion and how they all work together. So it was a it was a very nice, very touching, in some ways sad um, email, but there are a lot of folks out there. So, you know, we need to reach those kind of people and, and give them uh, uh, tips and advice on, on how to deal with it. So I've been getting quite a few of those sorts of emails. Yeah, I did want to talk about the sort of um, after effects of your essay. And that's one thing that I sort of experienced as well. I, I, um, I did a television show on the Oprah Winfrey Network where uh, it was called Miracle Detectives. And I was the scientific foil to a believer in miracles. And, and the show was premised on um, us going around the country and sort of investigating people's claims of the miraculous. Um, so you can imagine how well received <laughs> my role was then on the show uh, amongst fervent believers. And you know, I was raised Catholic. I was I was quite religious when I was younger, and so forth. And um, you know, my thinking since then has has evolved in some ways. Um, but I was shocked at the vitriol uh, that 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 I got from being on that show. I mean, people who sent me the kind of hate mail that you know was 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 really terrible. I mean, it's basically hoping that I give birth to deformed babies or I'm raped and, you know, all it was just it was it was shocking to me <laughs> how angry people were. And um, as someone who wasn't used to that kind of reaction, I, I took it very personally and it became emotional for me. So, you know, I wanted to reach out to you as someone probably who has more experience than I did at the time of kind of dealing with this kind of criticism. But just to say that, you know, I think for a lot of us, it's hard. It's hard not to react emotionally to that kind of anger. Yeah, well, yeah, I've I have plenty of teaching evaluations who have that have criticized me for um, teaching evolution, and I still get a few of them in my evolution class. Um, but uh, it, it bothers me. That means I didn't reach them, and that I can't reach them. And I, that's the thing about being a teacher: when you realize you can't get to everybody. It's not that I think I have a big ego, but I, I would like to believe a teacher can get to everybody, and it's not the case. So that bothers me. But uh, I've I've never gotten the emails that I have before, you know, the, the emails I've gotten with this essay. So, yeah, I, I did get some uh, vitriol. But I, I – Orion asked me to at some point – Orion Magazine asked me at some point to sit down and go through the – emails and work up some stats and they'll publish a, a thousand word summary of what went on uh, and what I got. I, I would say probably 95 to 99 percent of the emails have been wonderful. Um, then there have been a few that have been negative, not rejecting evolution, but just criticizing how I teach and being told I don't know what I'm doing. But then there have been some, yeah, very ugly ones. Not Not as ugly as what <laughs> you just described, but I've been called a god hater and I've been damned to hell and 
that I'm too much of a coward to talk about evolution or debate evolution with other folks. And well, I've, I've debated. I, I don't I don't think it's particularly worthwhile, but I have debated. But yeah, I, I got called a few names and uh, I was equated to a uh, 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 orang- well, it, 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 the way it was set up that I'm no better than a y- orangutan that urinates into his own mouth. And so they had a picture of me and then a picture of this orangutan. I didn't know they could even do that, so I learned a little something. But uh, basically told I'm one and the same. And, you know, so those sorts of things. Uh, folks realized that I was getting uh, hit. Uh, Orion Magazine folks uh, said, asked me if I was doing okay with it. And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm okay with it. And uh, National Center for Science Education folks asked me if I was doing okay with it. And I said, yeah, I'm fine. I know I should not respond to these folks. And for the most part, I haven't. I slipped up twice. Uh, but it's just you, you just have to deal with it. And I think that's what we have to do. If we're going to talk about science and evolution and vaccinations, uh, publicly, uh, we're naive if we don't think we're going to get hit, and we just have to be ready for it. Yeah, and and that's yeah, that's the strategy that I've taken too. Is that I, I send those emails along to you know my support network, or I just ignore them or or delete them or or what have you. Um, but you know there are also people who get very much turned off by those responses, and they do get silenced by this you know very vocal but tiny minority. I think particularly in the South, and so I wondered if there was. Anything that you could say to those people, maybe to that young woman in that small town, you know, she seems to have a lot of courage to have accepted the fact that, you know, 40% of her Facebook friends are going to defriend her. And, and uh, you know, I hope that doesn't discourage other people from sort of following their their minds uh, in that same way. So is there any advice that you can give to, to people who are, are kind of that become sort of um, unwittingly uh, evangelistic about something that is as controversial in that particular part of where they live. What what advice can you give them? Well, I, I think that what they should do is contact the National Center for Science Education. There are great people there that will will help them and talk to them. Um, I think uh, the folks at Orion Magazine sent me the link to pass on to the young lady that I just mentioned, the, S- the Skeptic Society, and and suggested she uh, reach out to those folks because they have similar experiences and they have support groups of sorts and they get together and talk and um, to try to talk to um, like-minded people for support. I think that's the key thing. Yeah, it's it's sad anytime someone decides to be quiet to avoid the attacks. And, and that, that really is a shame. So now that you're no longer teaching the uh, course for non-majors, uh, what do you see as as what, what do you want to do in the future? Do you do you want to spend more time um, focusing on your work at the University of Kentucky, or are you going to be doing some outreach with this book coming up? Um, what are your what does your future look like? Well, I'm I'm sure I'll probably be teaching till the day I die. Right now, I, I look at my retirement plan, and it says I can retire four years after I die. So I think I'm probably going to be doing that for a while. Um, it's kind of a joke, but it is kind of a miserable condition. Um, well, I, so I, I'm sure I'll be teaching the evolution class um, as long as I'm here. I think the big thing, as others have done, I really, really want to write uh, popular nat- nature articles. I want to write popular evolution uh, books and essays and, and popular writing because that's a form of outreach that goes well beyond teaching here. So um, the Orion essay was – a second effort at that, and so it's it's coming across well. Um, folks at the University of Chicago Press asked me if I would expand it into 
a book, and um, and I, I want to do that, and planning on doing that. So I th- I think popular writing, popular science writing, is right there with continuing to teach here. Well, you obviously have uh, the passion for it, which is key, and also the talent for it, because your, your essay is beautifully written. So thank you for continuing uh, to fight the good fight uh, for evolution and for science. And thank you for being on Inquiring Minds, Jim Krupa. Well, thanks for having me. It was great. So off the top, you mentioned that you see the idea of creationism and potentially the teaching of intelligent designs in classrooms is a big problem. And Jim underscored that. But I'm still not quite a believer. I, I've seen Gallup polls that underscore that there's so many Americans that still don't trust in evolution, but you can pick that apart. Is this really a big issue that we need to tackle head on? Or is this one of those things at the fringes? Well, I think the problem is, is that, you know, I think the majority of Americans actually do. I I read a recent study that showed like 83% of adults actually think that creationism should not be taught in science, that in fact, evolution should be taught in science classes, but not creationism. So that's a, you know, strong majority of individuals. Um, And so I, you know, I think that from that perspective, there is a understanding amongst Americans that creationism is, is, doesn't have a place in, in, the science classes. But the problem is, is that I think, you know, we've got, you've got biology teachers who by eschewing the controversy by, by not, you know, saying strongly that the, that the evidence favors evolution, like beyond a doubt anymore, um, then they're letting their students sort of misunderstand one of the fundamental tenets of biology. So like, what if I said to you, Kishore, you know, you do, you've got a background in chemistry. So what if I said there was a completely um, different way of viewing the periodic table and that, you know, I don't know, some, some the elements were coming from alien life and that, you know, the electron affinity and all these other characteristics of the table can be explained by a, a, a whole set of I'm other listening. forces. <laughs> Okay, and I and and so now chemistry teachers are going to be teaching their students that well, there's this periodic table, and you know there's some holes in it. We don't, you know, we don't really understand, you know, why exactly why these elements behave the way that they do. I mean, we kind of do. There's some rules that they can follow, but we don't really fundamentally understand it. And there's this alternative view uh, that also has, you know, some of the some uh, uh, some ability to explain the evidence. But we'll call know, it intelligent chemistry. Intelligent yeah. chemistry, yeah. exactly. I. I, now, it's it, patently ridiculous. I get it. <laughs> it's totally ridiculous to have it taught in science classrooms. And there should be defenders against this. And he mentioned, you know, the National Center for Science Education is leading that battle here in the US. And I'm all for that. No, but your question was, is this still an issue? And what I'm trying to answer, like what I'm trying to say with the chemistry analogy, uh, not doing a very good job of it just yet. But here we go. One more time. <laughs> I'll try. Um, is that the point is, is that you're going to then train future thinkers, policymakers, leaders, and even people who eventually will go on to become scientists in a way that is just gives the fundamentals incorrectly. And I think then, you know, given that you build on those fundamentals for the rest of your, you know, educated life, I think that's a real problem. It's like, it's like, you know, teaching the alphabet in the wrong way. So here's the nuance that I struggle with on this topic. And it's it's not that um, I disagree at all about how science should be taught in these er- arenas. Like, none of that should make it into science classrooms. But oftentimes, I get the sense that a lot of the students that are coming into these classrooms that have uh, disagreements and are um, 
struggling to sort of um, meld their worldview together with what's being taught in science class have really deep seated beliefs that have been, you know, you know, entrenched with them either through some sort of like cultural thing, whether it's they learn about it through church or through their family. And uh, the idea of a science class um, and a science teacher uh, teaching students to, to question their belief systems feels diminishing in terms of its potential returns. What I agree is that you should teach evolution in biology classes, but I don't think you should go to the next step, which is saying like why creationism a bunch of uh, BS in that same science class. Well, I guess one thing that I'll say is that I really see science class as in some ways being the one place in our public education where critical thinking is taught as well. And I know you should be teaching critical thinking in English class and all your other classes, but I think for most kids, science is where they start to think critically. That's where they start to learn critical thinking. And I actually don't, I, I don't think it's a big deal to sort of bring up these issues um, in science class. Like, I, you know, I might go back, I'll flip flop, you know, we are coming up to an election year. So and say, you know, maybe it's not so bad to talk about creationism in science class insofar as it can teach students about what makes science different, what what qualifies as evidence, what qualifies as a theory. And you can use creationism as an example of something that is, you know, tells a good story and it's palatable to a lot of people, but it doesn't meet the criteria for scientific inquiry. I'm not bothered by the fact that he has students that, you know, ran, ran away from his class, that that yelled and, and, and sort of stormed out because they were challenged by evolution. The stuff that I found most disturbing is when it becomes in, ingrained in policy, that we're allowing science teachers to uh, not teach science, so to go against Supreme Court rulings. That, that sort of ingrainment in policy is where I think the real um, issue lies for me, because it also takes away from just the professionalism of science teaching. Like that is an uh, an endeavor with, that people study for years to become great science teachers, and and this whole idea of of teaching um, contrary theories to evolution and biology undermines the you know tens of thousands of of science teachers that are out there that have put in years of work to do it right. Unless, of course, you're using them just to highlight, you know, how they're not they're not scientific. And, you know, I, I agree with you. And I think that's, to me, one of the things that left me a little bit sad at the end of the interview was this knowledge that Jim Krupa is no longer teaching this biology for non-majors class. I think that's a real loss. And I hope there are other people that can fill his shoes, although he seems like a pretty special teacher. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. You can visit our website at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or at inquiringshow.tumblr.com. And you can find us on Twitter at inquiringshow, on Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by Transitional Forum Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chien. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. When you visit California, childhood rules. 
If you don't remember how awesome childhood is, just ask yourself, What would kids do? Then pack your fun pants and let childhood rule your family vacation. Start planning at visitcalifornia.com.